Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it's really a tremendous thrill to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, if you have not yet seen our big history show of this season, Silicon City, Computer History Made in New York, um, please return during regular museum hours. It's a great exhibition that uh, really makes it very clear that innovation, well, we all know that, but innovation was actually born in New York City, um, despite the West Coast pedigree that some, some would claim. Um, also, I want to make sure that everyone is already a New York Historical member. If not, um, please do consider joining. We have lots of materials and colleagues outside on your way out this evening to help you become a member. Tonight's program, Founding Rivals, is a part of the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law. And I would like to convey the deepest expression of gratitude to Rick Reese, who is, uh, has joined us this evening not only for uh, his sponsorship of this wonderful new addition to our roster of public programs, but uh, also for his tremendous efforts and generosity on uh, behalf of this great institution. He is the vice chair of our board of trustees. So thanks so much to both Bonnie and Rick, and to Rick tonight who's with us. Um, I'd also like to thank my great colleague, Dale Gregory, for her uh, enormous talent in uh, developing these programs and all the Chairman's Council members who are with us this evening. Tonight's program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program and copies of our speaker's books will be available for sale in our museum store. We're thrilled to welcome Richard Brookheiser the renowned historian and author, back to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Brooks Brookheiser is a senior editor of National Review, as well as a columnist for American history. In 2004, he was the historian curator of our spectacular exhibition on Alexander Hamilton, the man who made uh, America modern. No, the man who made modern America, exactly. <laughs> he did both things. And Rick was the curator of that spectacular exhibition. So, um, In 2008, Mr. Brookheiser was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush. He's written numerous books on revolutionary America, including the biography James Madison. We are also delighted to welcome back our moderator, Trevor W. Morrison, to New York Historical. He is the dean and Lori M. and Lori B sorry, Eric M. and Lori B. Roth, Professor of Law at New York University School of Law. Prior to joining the faculty at NYU, Dean Morrison was the Liviu Lubrescu Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. During 2009, he served as Associate Counsel to President Barack Obama. He's a former law clerk to Judge Betty B. Fletcher of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, as always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Rick. Um, 
let me add my thanks to Rick and Bonnie Reese for making this series possible. Um, I'm looking forward to tonight. Founding rivals is our topic. Now, when we think of the founding fathers, uh, I teach about them some in constitutional law each year to my students. We tend to talk about them in oversimplistic ways, or at least we risk talking about them in oversimplistic ways, as of one mind, as on the same team. In many ways, of course, they were, um, as leaders of aspects of the revolutionary effort against, against the crown. Um, and we see them in paintings uh, uh, around the Declaration of Independence or in uh, Constitution Hall in Philadelphia. Um, we see them as uh, presenting the sort of image of uh, a unified view of the beginning of the country that was established by the Constitution. Um, yet that would obscure some deep fissures, some deep disagreements between and among them. And so our topic tonight is in a sense to talk about the founders as rivals in different ways. When you think, Rick, about some of the leading issues that emerged early in the early years of the country's constitutional history that divided uh, some of the founders. Uh, what are some of those issues and what are the personalities on either sides of some of those leading divisions? Well, I think there are three issues, but there, there's also a, a trait of human nature which you should get out of the way first. And it, it's related to the fact that uh, two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time. <laughs> so. Everybody knew that George Washington was going to be the first president. He's unanimously elected and reelected. But if he retires or if he dies, uh, the second tier cannot all sit in his seat at the same time. And ambition never rests. It just never rests. So you always have to bear that in mind. Uh, in terms of issues, uh, I think there were three that really created, helped create the first two-party system. One is America's debts. Uh, wars cost money. Uh, we came out of the revolution owing vast sums of money, both the, the US government and the governments of the states. How are we going to pay that off? Should we pay that off? I mean, there, there were arguments that we shouldn't pay that off because we didn't like the creditors. I mean, not just because we owed the money, but they were, <laughs> they were thought to be reprehensible in various ways. So, and we'll go into, uh, we can go into a lot of detail about that. The second issue, and this is something you always have to remember in the early republic, it's two dates. April 1789, Washington is inaugurated for the first time. The Bastille falls in July. So there are exactly three months when the new form of government is not shadowed by the French Revolution. Three months. Then there's 26 years from the fall of the Bastille to the Battle of Waterloo, when it's the French Revolution, Napoleon, and all the wars that, that ensue from that. And that's a constant factor in American politics. What do we do about this? Whose side do we take? Do we take any side? What do we think of our former ally, France? What do we think of our former enemy, Britain? And how, sh how should we proceed? And then a third one, which we, which we kind of don't think about because it was kind of resolved rather easily, although it's, in a way it's still going on, is who gets the Spanish Empire? You know, when America is independent, Spain has everything west of the Mississippi and everything on the Gulf Coast. It's got Florida, it's got the whole Gulf Coast, Texas, and Mexico. It's all uh, a Spanish lake. Um, we wanted a lot of that. And how do we get it? Uh, now, the Louisiana Purchase was kind of a, a great 
windfall, mm -hmm. uh, which gave us a huge chunk of that. Uh, this issue also explains Burr's conspiracy, whatever that was, but it was certainly bound up with this question. And in a way, this question is still going on because that's what the immigration debate is all about. You know, the Spanish Empire is gone, but all those people are still around, and the Spanish Empire is moving here. So, you know, what do we think about that? So those are, uh, I mean, there's, there's the principle is ambition, and then the, those, are, those are three of the um, issues that people take different sides on. So that's fantastic. Just think about the scope of those issues. The first, over the debt, has huge implications for fiscal policy, for banking policy, mm -hmm. et cetera. The second is, among other things, about foreign affairs and national security in many ways. As, uh, uh, it seems like maybe the, this new country might have to choose sides or figure out a way not to be pulled to one side or another of an emerging, continuing conflict between France and Britain. And the third, as you say, is about territory. It's about the sort of power that comes from that territorial expansion. It is a way about immigration as well. Mm -hmm. um, an, an well, issue. our immigration sure. actually yeah. into, into places indeed, like Texas. Indeed, immigration. And, right. Uh, so let's take the first. Um, give us two figures who emerged on either side of the what to do about the debt issue. Well, um, one very salient figure is, is the man who becomes the first Treasury Secretary, and he's now the star of Broadway. This is Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. And, um, you know, he uh, had an early and precocious interest in finance, um, partly because he grew up as a merchant's clerk in an accounting house in the West Indies. So he was exposed to international trade very early. Uh, his mind was also bent that way, so, so it was a good fit. Uh, and so he devoted uh, a lot of attention to this. Um, as an officer in the war, he saw the bad effects of not having enough money uh, because the army was chronically undersupplied and, and never paid. I mean, it was given IOUs, basically, mm -hmm. and then sent home with a handshake, and that was it. Uh, so he's very mindful of these debts, and, and he's also mindful of the way monetary markets work. He knows how they respond to creditors who, who try to shuck off debts, which is you're out of luck the next time you want a loan. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you just become, you know, you can get loans, but you have to pay outrageous interest rates if you've been stiffing your previous creditors. So he is very concerned to get these debts honored and paid off. Uh, there are other people, uh, a lot of Americans are debtors, uh, and a lot of these are Southern planters. I mean, they were in debt to their British middlemen, um, who, who they'd send their crops to and then get a lot of their luxuries and also necessities from. And this relationship was, was very onerous. They often ended up being in debt. Um, the Treaty of Paris in 1783 says all these debts should be settled. But then a lot of states uh, passed state laws which you know, either postponed debt or said, well, it can be paid off in you know, state currency, which is you know, paper and it's not worth anything. I saw one figure uh, in one of these um, lawsuits that went through the American courts. Uh, there was an American debtor who owed 1,500 pounds sterling to London, which is, which is a lot of money. That's a big chunk. And then he paid it off under, under Virginia law uh, at 15 pounds. So that's not very, very good, good for this man. Rate. Yeah, this wasn't good for this man's creditors. And it went to court and it took years for this thing uh, to be resolved. So um, the people who represented these men, um, 
uh, Thomas Jefferson is, is a leading political figure in Virginia, as is James Madison. And uh, certainly, they would never have said, oh, I'm, I'm in favor of being a deadbeat. I mean, they would not have said it. They, they would have felt, you know, kind of horrified to think of themselves in those terms. Mm -hmm. But they were very, you know, responsive to their own situations and the situations of their constituents. And they were also very suspicious of, of the ways in which debts are financed and paid. I mean, it's banks, it's bankers. How do they make their money? They knew how they made their money. I mean, they had, they had land and they had slaves who grew their crops and that's how they made their money. They could, they could see it and they could feel it. But you know, bankers and, and, and stock speculators, they buy short and they sell long and they do all this stuff and who knows what that is. And, and you know, there's just this natural suspicion that we all have, and I, I include myself in this, um, at, you know, just magnified by their way of life and their lack of familiarity. And, and so, um, there, there was the seeds of the conflict, and then in, in the Washington administration, it's probably the thing that, that gets the first two-party system going, because it's Hamilton and people who agree with him, and they come to be called Federalists. And then it's, it's uh, Jefferson and Madison and their friends and allies who are the first Republican Party. Today's Democrats. But it's, it begins as the Republican Party, and it will change its name later. But it's the same party. And those divisions express themselves in one of the first great constitutional questions taken up by the new government, which is over the constitutionality of the Bank of the United right. States and Congress's right. ability to establish one. And we see Hamilton advising uh, Washington that it's within the Congress's power to establish right. this. Madison and Jefferson taking the other position, that one of them becomes a bit of a moving target over mm -hmm. time. Um, so we can play out that substantive disagreement between the two of them, and then we can see, and across the other issues you mentioned, their disagreement uh, expanding, if you want. Um, before we get to those issues, give us a sense of, at the personality level, um, how, did, how did Jefferson see Hamilton? How did Hamilton see Jefferson or Madison? Well, um, Jefferson, uh, there, there's a moment, uh, one of the uh, acute moments in his uh, back and forth with Hamilton. It's called the newspaper war because uh, Hamilton is writing essays in the papers and Jefferson has uh, allies who are writing essays in the papers for his side. He doesn't write them himself, but he has, in a way, he's a better politician. Hamilton always has to do everything himself. Jefferson knows, well, you have people who do that. You know, you have, so, so then you can say, as Jefferson does say to Washington, well, I haven't written any of this yeah, stuff. Right. You know, no, he didn't. He had people doing it for him. But he, uh, and then Washington is noticing this furor in the papers. He doesn't like it. He writes identical letters to both men, you know, asking them to just, just calm it down. And the letter Jefferson writes back, it has one of the ugliest phrases he, he ever wrote. But I, it just came from his, from his personal reaction to what was going on. He said of Hamilton that this man's career, from the moment that history can stoop to notice him, is a tissue of machinations against the liberty of his country. And I just, you know, from the moment that history can stoop to notice him, this is the Virginia planter. He's addressing Washington, who's also a Virginia planter. In a way, he's class signaling. He's to saying, whom no stooping was required. We're the yes. same. You know, we're the same. Why are you agreeing with this guy? This guy, he's from the Caribbean. 
He's illegitimate. You know, he's an arivist. He has sharp elbows. How come you're agreeing with him? And it's, it's ugly, but, but you can also see psychologically where it comes from. Uh, Hamilton, you know, Hamilton is a know-it-all. Uh, he, he, just, he just always thinks he understands everything, and he'll share that with you. Uh, and, you know, some people like the advice, and a lot of people don't, don't like the advice. Um, it's a, it's a, a quality of Washington that Washington is willing to give this man his head. And I think that speaks to Washington's sense of his own security. Uh, he has the security of a leader. This is an area he doesn't understand. You know, Washington could be his own Secretary of War. He could be his own Secretary of State. He Not knew, Treasury. he know that. Treasury, no. But he's willing to give it to this 25 years younger guy, whom he knows, he was a colonel on his staff, but he's just willing to trust him. And that's all right with him. And he, you know, he doesn't understand a lot about how it's working, but he does understand the problem, because he had the same ex wartime experience that Hamilton had. You know, we're trying to fight a war with nothing. Can't do that, you know. And he, he, you know, if you read his correspondence during the war, it's like you think the army's going to fall apart every month. And it literally often was at the point of that. So he wants uh, a, a more secure revenue stream. But he's willing to let this, this, this parvenu um, try to address the problem. We should bring in more characters into the into the oh, yes. in a moment. Um, well, maybe, why don't we start now? Um, where's Madison in this? Well, Madison, I'll tell you. Uh, I, I was just interviewed by Fox TV this afternoon about uh, about it, James Madison. No, no, but about <laughs> well, but I brought it around uh, about insult politics. Ah. Because they said, oh, insult politics, have we ever had such a thing? And I said, yes, worse. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to give you one of the great insults of the early republic. It was John Randolph of Roanoke, who's a little younger than, than the founding generation, although he knows them. And he said, Madison was always some man's mistress. First he was Hamilton's, then he was Jefferson's. I mean, that, you know, that's about as mean as it gets. <laughs> but he's, what he's describing is that Hamilton and Madison worked together uh, before, during, and right after the Constitutional right. Convention. They, they, they see that they believe the Articles of Confederation are not working, and it needs to be changed and strengthened. They were two of the architects of causing the convention to be about yes. a constitution, as opposed yes. to something much smaller. Yes, they, they really, you know, there was some intrastate uh, talk about, you know, economic relations, but right. they really broadened the scope of it. And then, you know, Madison is tireless at the Constitutional Convention. And Hamilton's a little erratic in his attendance, but then afterwards they write the Federalist Papers together, this great propaganda campaign for the Constitution. So there, and then there's a charming description of the two of them in New York in, I think it's the summer of 1789. Some old lady, uh, when she was an old lady, years and years later said, oh, she remembered they used to walk down the street and there was a monkey in someone's yard and they would play with it. I mean, it's just this lovely little vignette of these two guys in a street scene in, in early New York. But then, you know, then they drift apart and it, it's partly the Virginia 
politics. And, and suddenly, here's Hamilton with all these plans about banks, which is not Madison's forte. Mm -hmm. Also, Jefferson is back in America. Mm -hmm. Jefferson has been in France from like 85 to 89, mm -hmm. Madison corresponding with him um, often. But Jefferson is not physically there. And Jefferson is the man, Jefferson is the older brother that Madison never had. He's the cool older brother that Madison never had. He's as smart as, maybe not quite as smart as Madison, but his mind is just quirky and brilliant. And I think Madison was just thrilled to be in this guy's, you know, in the intimacy of this man. It must have been just so exciting to be with this, this guy who was shooting off skyrockets. You know, he like could drop some immortal thing in a letter. It just must have been thrilling. So now he's back in the country. So he falls um, naturally, uh, I don't want to say under his influence, because they influenced each other, but they kind of made real a partnership that they'd already had and it was sort of temporarily um, cooled by him being across the Atlantic Ocean. So did Hamilton feel betrayed by this? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He writes, I mean, you know, like, like, like a lot of brilliant self-involved people, he notices it kind of late, but then he, and then he writes a letter, a sort of a creed de coeur to a Virginia friend of his named Edward Carrington. And it's a private letter, but, but he meant it to be circulated. I mean, if you, <laughs> if, you, if you really didn't want something circulated, you said confidential. But this was, this was a way, and everybody did this. It wasn't just him. And, it, and it's sort of his, his statement of what he thinks has happened with his relationship both with Madison and with Jefferson. And he seems to think that Jefferson is the worst of the two, that he's really a sort of a dangerous ideologue. And Madison, I think he describes Madison's character as peculiarly complicated. <laughs> so, so that's where he, he's left. It's sort of like, huh, what? You know, why are these people, I'm, I'm just trying to fix everything. Why are these people so angry with me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's bring John Adams into the picture. Okay. Um, uh, how does he come into the picture? Um, well, he's, you know, he's an eminent patriot. And he's been doing this, he's been in that role for a long time. He, uh, uh, he defended the British soldiers after the Boston Massacre. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, that was a patriotic assignment because the point was to prove to the English public that justice could be done in the 13 colonies. You know, they, they were vehemently opposed to the British occupation of Boston. But their argument was, well, this is what you can expect will happen. There will be a clash of this kind. People will die. Well, now it's happened. But we're not like the barbarians you think we are. We can try these men fairly. And that's what Adams does. And he gets, you know, he gets, he gets everybody off. I think two of the soldiers get branded on their thumbs. But he really does a brilliant uh, courtroom performance. So this is, you know, this is before the revolution. And then he's in both continental congresses. Uh, he, is our, uh, he is sent to Europe as a diplomat. Uh, he uh, helps negotiate the Treaty of Paris. He helps America get vital loans from Holland. Um, in, in, the, in the midst of all that, he came briefly back to Massachusetts and wrote Massachusetts's state constitution. <laughs> you know, he was, he was very hardworking, very earnest, very patriotic. and. Um, you know, if Washington's going to be the first president, then that means the vice president should be from the north. 
and uh, so it would be Adams or John Hancock, and Adams was the more was the better choice, and he got and he got the job. So he's the first vice president to complain that he doesn't really have anything to do. <laughs> um, although there was Washington had a very alarming illness early on in his first administration, and everybody was terrified, including Adams. Uh, but you know he recovers. So then. So there, the, Adams is the vice president uh, for two terms, and then he feels, uh, with a lot of reason, well, it should be me. You know, I'm, I'm the next in line. But a party system is already formed, and he finds himself contesting this election with Thomas Jefferson, who's his old friend. They're both diplomats in Europe together, and Adams like Jefferson, Abigail Adams like Jefferson. Um, you know, they really kind of took him in, uh, but now all of a sudden, you know, here, the, here they are enemies. And it's a very uh, tight election, very narrow Adams victory. And then after it's over, Jefferson writes a letter to Adams. It's a very interesting episode. And he says, you know, the press has been putting us on opposite sides, but I hope we haven't felt that ourselves. And I just, I just want to let you know that it's my sincere wish uh, that your time as president will be, will be happy and glorious. And then Jefferson sends this letter to James Madison. He says, what sh shall I send this on? And Madison says, no, don't do this. Don't give hostages to fortune. You know, you're writing compliments to this guy. He's going to do things we disagree with. Do you want him to then be able to produce this and say, oh, here's what he thought of me? Also, we just had an election. What about all the people who were working for you? You know, now you're turning around complimenting the man they helped you, they wanted you to defeat. Then Madison, this is so Madison, he says, but if you want me to send it, if you want to send it, you better <laughs> post date it. Because, you know, I've spent a few days advising you here. And Jefferson never sent the letter. So it's a very poignant moment. It's the human relationship that he had, but you know, he's a politician. And he and Madison is saying, look, this is serious here. You gotta you gotta stand by your party and your supporters. And that's what Jefferson does. Now, how does the question of of the tension between, and more than that, between France and Britain show up in this in terms of the disagreement between well, and among these right, rivals? Right. And I don't know. Well, I guess it's, it's a little related to the financial problem because you know, part of Hamilton's plans for making the country solvent is to encourage trade, and he sees that our obvious trading partner is Britain. You know, they just have more of what we want than France has. They're already a manufacturing country. They are producing things that, that you know, we need, and he hopes that America will become a manufacturing country, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, as that's happening, we have to be trading with Britain, and this gives us revenue you know, from, from tariffs uh, because our taxes are, are rather low. So, he, so for that reason, he's inclined to be pro-British. Isn't it true, though, that at least his rivals caricatured him earlier than that as um, uh, overly fond of the monarchy and as even wanting to establish an American one well, as being they, too British in that sense. Yeah, they, you know, he gave this very indiscreet um, speech, uh, a very able one at the Constitutional Convention, mm -hmm. but he said, you know, look, we should have 
um, uh, he called it a governor of the states. We should have an executive for good behavior. <laughs> and he also, he started off by saying the best constitution in the world is Britain's. But I don't, I'm not going to shock um, public opinion by proposing such a thing for us, and I don't think it would work. But here's what I think we should do instead. We should have a president for good behavior, in other words, life, if he behaves well, and also senators for good behavior, um, like, sort of like the House of Lords. And he wanted a, a house with universal manhood suffrage. So that was sort of his populist side. But yes, yeah, so he gave this speech. The Constitutional Convention, of course, was, was um, you know, it was secret, but Madison took the notes. So Madison shares them with Jefferson. You know, Jefferson, aha, right. look, that's what he's like. So, I mean, so there's, there's Hamilton's financial program enters into it. But then there's also, you know, and at first, everybody in America likes the French Revolution. And they think, great, our allies are becoming like us. They're going to have a liberal constitutional monarchy. This is terrific. Uh, is anyone skeptical? I think Governor Morris is. Mm -hmm. He's the New Yorker who's actually in Paris, first as a businessman, then he becomes our ambassador there. And he sees you know, a lot of what goes on from the very beginning. And he just, he likes the French, but he just doesn't think they can possibly have an American-style government. Mm -hmm. He says, I think it's even before the Bastille falls, he says, they want an American constitution, but they don't have Americans to sustain it. <laughs> I mean, we would now call that sort of a realist view of you know, the capacities of foreigners. But, so then, but then as, as the revolution becomes openly um, very violent, mm. then people split. I mean, some people are shocked by that, others not. I mean, and there's, there's, there's a, a famous letter that Jefferson writes uh, to one of his protégés, a, a young Virginian named William Short, who's another diplomat in Europe. And Short is a Jeffersonian, but he's sending letters back saying, oh my god, they're massacres, is this, that, and the other thing. And Jefferson writes him, he's Secretary of State, he says, he says you better not write this stuff. And he's really telling him, zip, zip it. And then he says, you know, and I regret the deaths of some of these people because they were friends of mine when I was in France, but they were martyrs to this revolution for liberty. And if, if the world uh, were, were reduced only to an Adam and Eve and they were free, it would be better than it now is. Hmm. I mean, that, that is a very sobering thought. You know, just... just Think about that. I mean, I knew uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien, who's dead. He was this Irish intellectual, and he, he developed a hatred for Jefferson. And he said, that's worse than Pol Pot. Hmm. Now, if Jefferson meant that literally, yeah, that, that is worse than Pol Pot. Jefferson is very eloquent, you know, and he says things. Hmm. And sometimes his thoughts, you know, they, they run away with him because he, he thinks of the best way to say it. And, it's really uh, out there. Maybe this marks me a Hamiltonian, but I'm struck by how many people when defending Jefferson seem to have to say something like, he didn't really mean that. Well, no, I, <laughs> well but you know, it's interesting when he, he only cools on the French Revolution, and this shows you how his mind works, when Napoleon takes it mm -hmm. over. Because Napoleon is a military man. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like military men. So then, all right, then he cools off although he's always willing to, to, to um, uh, hope he can deal with Napoleon more than with the British. Mm -hmm. 
and, and he and Madison, I think, are rather credulous about Napoleon. We're, we're looking at the 19th century now, early 19th century. But, but certainly in the, in the early phases of the revolution, he thinks, you know, this is great. Maybe they'll invade France, or maybe they'll invade uh, Britain. You know, they'll invade all these, these, these decadent monarchies in Europe. This, this will be terrific. And so, and, and this infects American politics. And we take on, uh, we import the rhetoric of the revolution to a degree here. Um, Federalists, Hamiltonians fear that uh, the Republicans will set up guillotines. Mm -hmm. They actually write this in letters to each other. Uh, Republicans think that Hamilton and the Federalists are British agents and monarchists. <laughs> you know, and neither of these things are, are true, but they just, you know, there's this world war going on. It's an ideological world war. It's like World War II or the, the Cold War, except it's hot. And we're this rather small country, you know, not so far away that we can be completely out of it, but sort of on the edge of it. And, and so people, they just import that rhetoric, and it's a kind of a process of like self-crazing mm -hmm. that goes on. <laughs> and, um, and this is what I was, was trying to tell, tell Fox, that, you know, it, the, the rhetoric uh, of politics in the 1790s and really right up through the War of 1812 is as bad as it ever got in this country. In the 1850s, obviously equally bad, and we get the Civil War. But um, we haven't seen anything like it. We just haven't seen anything like it. And the other thing is they killed each other. I mean, politicians shot and killed each other. Yeah. You know, duels were, were illegal everywhere. Uh, deaths and duels were murders. But they happened, and they were never prosecuted. No jury would convict. Speaking of, we can bring Aaron Burr into this. I oh, suppose. yes, Aaron Burr. Well, you know, I did see Hamilton before it uh, went to Broadway. <laughs> I reviewed it um, for National Review. Uh, and a great show. Uh, the, the one sort of quarrel I have with it, and I know why they did this. Um, Aaron Burr seems like basically a nice guy. Uh, yes, he does kill the hero, and, um, you know, he has no convictions of his own. But he seems like a nice guy, and he loves his daughter, and, and so on. And I, I, I get it. I understand it. You, you want sort of your foil to be somehow the, the equivalent or the peer of, of the hero. And it works on stage. Uh, Aaron Burr, I think he was my window into Burr. I, I read a book by one of Hamilton's grandsons, actually. And it was written about 1900. And he interviewed a very old man who had known Burr when he was very young and Burr was very old. Burr dies in 1836. Mm -hmm. So that's how, how the time, time works. And so Hamilton's grandson asks this guy, he says, you knew Aaron Burr. And everybody said he was charming. What did that mean? And the guy said, it was how he listened to you. He listened to you as if what you were saying was more important to him than it was to you. Now, I read that and I thought, that's how a certain kind of psychopath works. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just really like, you're it. You're it for me. Yes. I get it. I'll, I'll fix it for you. And I think this is why we'll never figure out Burr's conspiracy. You know, he, he takes this, 
he takes this trip, he starts down, this is when Jefferson's president, the second term, and he goes down the Ohio River and he's floating down the Mississippi with a group of armed men. And Jefferson finally gets alarmed and says, oh, he's a traitor, arrest him. He's arrested, he's tried for treason and acquitted. You know, and historians, you know, and Burr said, well, look, I, I was trying to take uh, uh, Texas from um, Spain. You know, I'm a good patriot here. I'm trying to make the country bigger. Sort of on his own. With on this his, just band well, of guys, Yes, right? on I mean, his own, yeah. sure. Yeah. But, but then we did, I mean, Henry Adams did find correspondence from the British ambassador in the United States back home saying that, well, Burr was talking to me and he's planning to um, take over New Orleans and then ultimately sail to Washington and, and hang Jefferson. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> But I think, I think Burr was just, he was meeting unhappy people and just saying, I'll fix it for you. You know, I'm the guy, I'm your guy, I'll make it happen. And one of his, you know, then the other great mystery is his partner in this who turns on him at the very end is James Wilkinson, who's the main military man in New Orleans. And he's been a secret agent of Spain for 20 years <laughs> on the payroll of Spain. But he finally, he likes Jefferson. He's loyal to Jefferson for some reason. And he decides finally, uh, I, I, can't, I can't go through with this, whatever this was. And so he, he helps turn, he turns Burr in. But then when Burr is being tried, Wilkinson's testimony is, Wilkinson seems so dodgy. I mean, it's like a mob trial where the main witness has to admit, <laughs> oh, yes, I murdered 20 people. You know, and not that Wilkinson had murdered people, but he'd been this traitor and double agent. So, you know, his testimony doesn't, uh, doesn't hold up. So, so that's the, you know, then Aaron Burr, after that, he has to um, spend some time in Europe before he finally comes back. So what was Burr after? I think Burr was, uh, you know, Hamilton writes a letter. This is in the election of 1800 when, when Jefferson and Burr have tied. This is before the 12th Amendment. Um, the 12th Amendment says there shall be tickets. You know, there'll be a president and a vice president. And every elector in the Electoral College will cast two votes, one for a president, one for a vice president. Before that, it was every elector cast two votes. You know, and then whoever got Very the most different. votes is president, right. whoever second. second is vice president. Well, so in 1800, Jefferson and Burr, they decide to have like party loyalty and discipline. They all get the same number of votes. And I mean, clearly most people in Jefferson's party, the Republican Party, thought that Jefferson was their leader. But Burr certainly had a constitutional um, you know, right, should he have chosen, to hope that maybe the House of Representatives would mm -hmm. throw the election to him. Uh, so, and this, this is, and, and Federalists think, well, we hate Jefferson so much, let's stick Burr in there. Except for Alexander Hamilton, who, who thinks, uh, look, I, I've known this guy from New York forever, you really don't want to put him in the White House. So he writes these frantic letters to Federalists and there, he always starts off by saying, if there's anyone I ought to hate, it's Jefferson. You know, he's, he's a hypocrite. He's this, he's that. You know, and then he, then he takes a deep breath. But, you know, he, he won't do this, he won't do that. And please don't elect Burr. And in one of these letters, he says of Burr, uh, how can it be a good thing to have no theory? <laughs> That's a very interesting criticism of Burr. He says he has no theory. And I think the musical gets this right. They, you know, Hamilton has his ideas, Jefferson has his, Adams has his, everybody has ideas. They're passionate about them. 
And here's this, this, this operator. You know, he doesn't really seem to have any. He likes politics. He's very good at that. But, you know, what will he do? Yeah, you know, who knows? And that's why Hamilton fears him uh, and why he ends up getting shot by him. It's an amazing uh, turn of events, isn't it, that Hamilton's defense of maybe his bitterest rival on ideas, that is Jefferson, uh, is not the only point of, uh, of conflict between him and Burr, but it's a major one. It's a major one. It brings one. his demise. It's a major one, yeah. There is a lot more we could talk about. We haven't even introduced John Marshall, All right. uh, the great constitutionalist and, and first great, not first chief justice, but first great chief justice, who is a, a player in all of this as well. But I'm looking at the time and want to leave some time for questions from all of you. So why don't, we, why don't we do that now? There are microphones in each aisle. And if you'd like to ask a question, please come to the mic. Um, and we will proceed. Yes, sir. With, with all that went on during this uh, very challenging early period of our government, um, what would you say was the design part of our government that was tested the most around the three issues in particular that were cited here? Tested the most. Well, I guess, I guess it would be uh, the feature that the periodical, the periodic elections that the Constitution lays out, you know, representatives every two years and senators every six and president every four, that that just worked. You know, it just kept going. And th that sounds like kind of an obvious thing now because we've been doing it for over 200 years. But then it was, and I think you always have to remember it, to, to explain the craziness of the rhetoric, you have to understand the anxiety behind the craziness. And a lot of the anxiety is that this is brand new. You know, they knew the Constitution. There it says, all right, you know, you'll have these elections. But they hadn't gone through that yet. And they certainly hadn't gone through it with political parties, which was kind of a surprise to everybody, even though everybody was involved in setting them up. So, you know, now we know if you lose, you're going to have another shot. But they weren't, they weren't that sure. I mean, there, were, there, there was, were proposals among the Federalists at the end of the Adams administration, well, let's have a special election law in case you know, there's no winner in the electoral uh, college. And maybe, you know, maybe the chief justice would be the acting president for four years. I mean, there, there were ideas like that were running around. And then on the Republican side, the governors of Pennsylvania and Virginia, who were Republicans, they were ready to call out their militias. You know, and one of the great things Jefferson did for this country is he calmed all his followers down. Because he was just so confident he was going to win, and he figured it would all come right, and he just and he exuded this air of calm. Look, just, just sit tight. The people will pick us. And they did. So I would say that that was the signal thing. I think you've got to be right about that. If you look at the history of constitutional transitions in the last 100 years around the world, um, uh, it's observed by someone that uh, it's fairly difficult to, in a moment of constitutional transition, to have an election in a polity that hasn't previously been democratic. But it's really difficult to have two. 
because the question is whether you know, power will be relinquished mm -hmm. um, and whether the stakes of political loss will be something less than loss of life. Right. And that we achieved those from the beginning um, mm -hmm. is, I think, a, a sort of but-for cause of what came after. Right, yeah. right. Question here. You've teased us with John Marshall. I, I know he was uh, um, Jefferson's cousin. They hated each other. He throws uh, the case against Burr out. Can you talk about him? He created the, the equality of the court as, a, as an equal branch with the executive and the, and the legislature. Well, I, he's my next um, subject. Uh, I, my, my book is due at the end of, of 17, so I'm, I'm in the stage of, of soaking up you know, everything like a sponge. And um, he certainly, he had the lowest opinion of Jefferson. <laughs> and I think it's because he had the highest opinion of Washington. And he deeply resented uh, Jefferson's pulling away from the Washington administration in Washington's first term, uh, particularly uh, with respect to the French Revolution. And they had sent a minister to this country uh, named Charles Edmond Genet, Citizen Genet. And he, he basically tried to be an American political figure as a diplomat. I mean, he was... He was addressing public meetings and you know, sort of rallies to support France, and he, he was doing all sorts of, you know, very undiplomatic stuff, and uh, with some encouragement from Jefferson. I mean, not not as much as he thought he was getting, but with some. And, and Marshall just hated this. And I think after 1793, there was never a moment when John Marshall thought well of Thomas Jefferson. And he just thought he was a demagogue. And he thought, you know, he becomes Chief Justice at the tail end of Adams's administration. And he administers the oath of office to Jefferson, uh, both times. Uh, but he just, he, just, he just thinks that, that this man is going to undo all the good work of George Washington and John Adams. And he sees himself as kind of the lonely holdout in the court. And, uh, and by golly, he lives a long time. I mean, he's in there in 1801, and he doesn't quit until he dies in 1835. So he goes through all of Jefferson, all of Madison, Monroe, Adams, and on into Jackson. And, and he never gives up. I mean, there are letters he writes after Jefferson has died where he's still banging away. And Jefferson hates, and Jefferson hates him, too. Hates him. He said, I'll give you Jefferson's line, and then I'll stop. But Jefferson said to um, Justice Story, uh, before he was uh, going to get on the court, uh, he said, uh, you must never answer a question from Marshall. You must never give him a direct answer. If he asked me if the sun were shining, I would say, no, I don't know, sir, I can't tell. <laughs> because he thought Marshall was such a sophist, he could twist, twist it into anything. So there, there are these two... Uh, He's two cousins, as you said. And an amazing thing about Marshall once he's on the court, um, you're right to point out, and um, we think most, of course, of Marbury against Madison, but of other cases as well, as establishing the stature institutionally of the court. He has other innovations, like the innovation of a majority opinion on the Supreme Court, as opposed to each member of the court writing his own opinion that brings weight to the court's work. But the early acts of, of Marshall's, establishing the independence of a judiciary that can be respected as such over time, though it has neither the power of the purse nor the power of the sword, 
were supremely political acts. It's mm -hmm. impossible to read Marbury versus Madison as anything other than the continuation of a political struggle uh, between the Federalists um, and the Republicans. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's impossible to read McCulloch against Maryland uh, upholding the constitutionality of the bank, except against the backdrop of the disagreement between Hamilton, Madison, and Jefferson uh, more than two decades earlier. Right, so. and he quotes Hamilton in the decision. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. Yes. Oh, thank you both. It's both very enlightening. Um, I've often wondered the 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 uh, New Republic was very was broke, owned a lot of money. One thing it, it was a lot of was that it was land. It was ample land, but it never really the federal federal government have never took advantage of that. Unlike the next century when the West was settled, the Trans Mississippi was settled. And the Fed still own most of the land out there, and we see it causes even trouble today. Was there any thought to use land as an asset, to sell it off, to use it as a security for loans, things like that? There, there were people who, who did think of that as land banks, mm -hmm. um, and including early opponents of Hamilton's proposals to set up a bank in mm -hmm. the United States. Mm -hmm. And this is right. a frequent counter-argument. Well, why don't we have a land bank instead? Uh, and then there's a very poignant proposal idea of James Madison when he's an old man. And he's um, considering the issue of slavery. And what do we do about this? And he, he calculates how many slaves there are in the country and what it would cost to buy them all and liberate them and send them to Liberia. And it's a, hu it's a huge figure he comes up with. But he says, well, you know, we've got all this land you know, in the, 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 the Louisiana Territory and um, uh, the Adams-Onus Treaty with Spain. I mean, we, we have all this land. We should sell that off. I mean, it's a national problem. The nation should, should, should bear the weight of doing it. Um, pie in the sky just, just could, never, could never have gotten that through. But it shows, um, it shows that he saw there was this serious problem, and he, he's kind of grasping at a straw to possibly solve it. That's what he turned to. You know, your answer um, prompts me to say that I think we'd all agree no picture of any of these men in that period is complete without acknowledging the relationship they had to the institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, was that an issue? Is that an issue you think of as marking disagreement between among them in significant ways or not as much? With some northern Federalist, it be, Federalists, it becomes one. Uh, Timothy Pickering had been in Washington's cabinet. Didn't like Washington. Thought he was stupid. Uh, he didn't like anyone except Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton was the only other founder he liked. Pickering is a diehard Federalist. And he comes up with a phrase for Jefferson. He calls him a Negro president. Mm. Now, he doesn't mean that Jefferson is a black man, but he means he holds he won the first time because of the three-fifths rule, because of the apportionment of votes in the House and therefore the Electoral College, which counts slaves as three-fifths of a person. And so overcounts the South. And basically. so overcounts the South. It's, it's a gift to their masters, because obviously the slaves are not, uh, are not voting. So, uh, and this is kind of an element of, of Northern bitter and Federalist polemic. Mm -hmm. 
there's, there's also a phrase, uh, Governor Morris, during the War of 1812, he's talking about Virginia, and he says, well, they can continue to, to whip Negroes and bawl about the rights of man. You know, so that's, that's you, you see that, and some of this, uh, I mean, Timothy Pickering, I believe, hired a young William Lloyd Garrison to do some journalistic work. So there's a little, yeah. there's a little connection there. Um, you know, it's, it's not, not sort of the best source of abolitionism because, right. because so much of it is founded in bitterness and rancor. And, and Pickering was a secessionist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wanted to take New England out of the Union. He tried it twice. Um, he, was a, he was a determined fellow. Uh, and then, of course, secession is what, what the South ultimately does. But um, th that's where you see it. I think we have time maybe for one more. Yes. Or do we have more time than that? Great. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'll be the last to stop us. Let's go. <laughs> Just curious of your opinion on the, uh, the gathering to write the Constitution, if it was a gathering meant to make up a document which would protect the government from the people or to protect the people from too much or too strong of a government? Well, they felt that they were uh, expressing the will of the people and reaching around the states to do it. And this is why, uh, and Madison is one of the people who insists on it, but they all, they all agree, that it should not be sent back to the, to the state legislatures to vote it up or down, but it should be done by conventions in the states. You know, and obviously the legislatures have a role in calling these elections, but the franchise in these elections is often much broader than the franchise for electing people in the state legislatures. I mean, it's, it's the broadest franchise that, that we had in, in the country uh, up to that point. And, and, and so it's not, you know, it's not an accident that the preamble begins, uh, we the people. Uh, and that was something that, that, that these supporters of the Constitution were, were conscious of, of what they were doing. And, and one of their motivations is they thought, ah, oh, we've, you know, we've had the state governments have been ruling the roost and they've been screwing everything up. I mean, they, they pass uh, heaps of legislation uh, sometimes they come back the next year and contradict what they did the last year. Um, they're, they're passing all these dodgy economic uh, uh, measures. Um, a lot of these states are run by, uh, well, they call Rhode Island the paper money junto because Rhode Island prints, prints paper money. And, uh, you know, and then Massachusetts has Shays Rebellion and, you know, what's, what's going on up there. They, they don't know they're getting these, these, these very gloomy reports, frantic reports from Henry Knox. Uh, but they think, they, they think of this as a government that will, uh, that will express the people's will. Now, you know, there are many opinions about the Constitution, and we, we still have them, and we still go back and forth. But certainly, that's what they thought they I think were that's, up to. I think that's fair. Hamilton. And others of his view might have said it was less about more government than about effective government, um, viewing with suspicion uh, the performance of a number of state governments, including for Hamilton, including New York. The, the New York governor and Hamilton were no allies, that's for mm -hmm. sure. And so 
It was frustration also with the two-week form of federal government that existed under the Articles of Confederation, which was thought itself to be a danger. Mm. Um, but I think you're right. They had a view of there ultimately being a mandate from the people itself. Now, exactly what the full expression of that idea is, is one of the ongoing uh, disagreements about our Constitution today. And it's amazing but, how much of what we've been talking about this last 45 minutes is the sort of framework for political and constitutional disagreement today. And the people certainly threw themselves into it in the ratification struggle. Yes. Uh, Pauline Meyer wrote this very yeah. interesting book a few years ago where she just goes through all the states. And it really was, uh, you know, some states really like, like sort of shoved it through, but others there was genuine broad-based popular debate. Um, when you were talking about the bank, you mentioned that Jefferson, a little closer, Jefferson and Madison felt that the Constitution didn't support it. Obviously, Hamilton did. Do you believe that that Jefferson, Madison, as what we would probably call strict constructionists, Hamilton is having a more flexible view of the Constitution? Were they simply doing that for political reasons, or did they understand the fact that? they would be setting up this debate that continues today about what was meant by the Constitution and whether, in fact, it, would, it was intended to be flexible or not. Oh, I think, I think they were, everybody in this period is very mindful that they're setting precedents. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they really are. Uh, from, from things of, of the scope of, of whether you can have a Bank of the United States down to things like how should the president behave at a reception? You know, should he shake people's hands? And Washington decided I, I shouldn't shake anyone's hand because there, there are some people I would naturally shake their hands, you know, because I've known them forever. And then there are other people I'm just meeting for the first time, and I don't want to make distinctions. I mean, that would be wrong. I'm the president of everybody, so I'll just, you know, I'll have these receptions, and anybody can come once a week, but I'll just, you know, give a bow. And, uh, and he got some flack for that. I mean, there, were, there was a senator from Virginia who said, oh, he's putting on royal airs. He's like a king or something. And, you know, and poor Washington is just trying to you know, do some sort of Republican thing that will be, treat everybody equally. A last word on the bank. The, uh, when Marshall writes the opinion for the court upholding Congress's power, uh, to pass legislation establishing a bank in McCulloch against Maryland, one of the most famous lines in that opinion is, he says, we must never forget, we judges, we Americans, must never forget when trying to determine the constitutionality of legislation like this as a, and reading the Constitution to do that, we must never forget that it is a Constitution we are expounding. That's one of those great lines, because who could possibly disagree with it? Yes, it is a, con a Constitution we are expounding, but what follows from that? What what, what is the right way to interpret this document? And the disagreement that is with us today was in many ways marked out in that disagreement among Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison. Rick, thank you so much. This has been a fun conversation, and thanks to all of you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. It is just a delight to have you all with us. Seems like almost every night during the week, we have these wonderful conversations. Trevor Morrison, Rick Brookheiser, thank you so much. Rick will be signing books this evening. So stay for the book signing, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much.